good to be here and share the Word of God with you. Uh, today's passage comes from the book of 1 Samuel. We'll be reading the entirety of the third chapter and to the beginning of the first verse of chapter 4. So from 1 Samuel chapter 3 to chapter 4 to the beginning of chapter, uh, verse 1. If you're using your pew Bibles again, you can turn to page 213 and find your place there. And you have found it, please rise with me in reverence for the reading of God's word. Hear now the word of the Lord. Now the boy Samuel was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli, and the word of the Lord was rare in those days. There was no frequent vision. At that time, Eli, whose eyesight had begun to grow dim so that he could not see, was lying down in his own place. The lamp of God had not yet gone out, and Samuel was lying down in the temple of the Lord where the ark of God was. Then the Lord called Samuel, and he said, Here I am. And ran to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. But he said, I did not call. Lie down again. So he went and lay down. And the Lord called again, Samuel. And Samuel arose and went to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. But he said, I did not call, my son. Lie down again. Now Samuel did not yet know the Lord, and the word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. And the Lord called Samuel again the third time, and he rose and went to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. Then Eli perceived that the Lord was calling the boy. Therefore Eli said to Samuel, Go, lie down, and if he calls you, you shall say, Speak, Lord, for your servant hears. So Samuel went and lay down in his place. And the Lord came and stood, calling as at other times, Samuel, Samuel. And Samuel said, Speak, for your servant hears. Then the Lord said to Samuel, Behold, I am about to do a thing in Israel at which the two ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. On that day I will fulfill against Eli all that I have spoken concerning his house from beginning to end. And I declare to him that I am about to punish his house forever for the iniquity that he knew because his sons were blaspheming God and he did not restrain them. Therefore I swear to the house of Eli that the iniquity of Eli's house shall not be atoned for by sacrifice or offering forever. Samuel lay until morning, then he opened the doors of the house of the Lord. And Samuel was afraid to tell the vision to Eli. But Eli called Samuel and said, Samuel, my son. And he said, Here I am. And Eli said, What was it that he told you? Do not hide it from me. May God do so to you and more also if you hide anything from me all that he told you. So Samuel told him everything and hid nothing from him. And he said, It is the Lord. Let him do what seems good to him. And Samuel grew and the Lord was with him and let none of his words fall to the ground. And all Israel from Dan to Beersheba knew that Samuel was established as a prophet of the Lord. And the Lord appeared again at Shiloh, for the Lord revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh by the word of the Lord. 
and the word of Samuel came to all Israel. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Our God and Father, we ask you, imploring you, since all fullness of wisdom and light is found in you, to mercifully enlighten us by your Holy Spirit in the true understanding of your word and to give us grace to receive it in true fear and humility. May we be taught by your word to place our trust only in you, to serve and honor you as we should, so that we may glorify your holy name in all our living and edify our neighbor by our good example, rendering to God the love and obedience which faithful servants owe their masters and children their parents. Since it has pleased you to graciously receive us among the number of your servants and children, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. As we move forward in time and history, and especially to our current day, the world seems to be getting smaller, while our days seem to be getting darker. Growing up in the northeast coastal areas of the United States, I, I grew up in New York City, um, I learned things in a way perhaps in other parts of the country they wouldn't have. Perhaps many of you also grew up in this area. And so the, then you would understand there was the elevation of individual autonomy. Uh, my body, my choice might be a very good representation of this ideal. There was also a learning of our past that was more resentful than repentant. And this has most unambiguously led to the rise of generations, mine included. I grew up in a generation where my dad had one of the like earlier personal computers. He had a 286. I don't know if many of you know what that is. It's a 286 chip. And then from 286, it would go to 386 to 486 to the Pentium. And then the 680, no, it wasn't. Psych, it went to Pentium Pro, 2, 3, 4, Core, Core, Core Duo, whatever. And it goes on from there. And I remember even getting my own first personal computer. I got this 486 DX2. I know I've lost like 99% of you here. And I, when I pressed that turbo button, when it went from 33 megahertz to 66, I felt like I was king. But I also saw a change in culture, not just technology. And I saw that in this rise of this new culture in the generations that has gone out, we started to suffer from this contagion known as entitlement. It led to hatred of the land that we live in, despising its traditions and mores. And it has gone further now to a place where if you even hold love for your country, it makes you some kind of nationalist or bigoted or ignorant. The church seems to also have increasing and increasingly smaller influence on the public sector. You may have seen many a leader compare our current day 
with the time of Judges, the book before 1 Samuel. The time of Judges was a mess. And it can be summed up. If I were to take the book of Judges and sum it up in one verse, you can find that in Judges 17.6 where it says, In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And this wasn't just some matter-of-fact statement on the current-day affairs at the time of Judges. It was a commentary on how they were going directly against God's word by saying, in those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. It was going against Deuteronomy chapter 12, verse 8, where it says, you shall not do, to, you shall not do according to all that we are doing here today, everyone doing whatever is right in his own eyes. Directly going against that. But this was the common theme at the time of Judges in Israel. The book of Judges even ends with the exact verse that I've read from 17.6. When you have a society or societies or when you have the world moving toward this verse, you have darkness like you had in Israel at the time of this reading. And this is something that if you have ever heard me preach before, I mention often, the only way out of darkness is repentance. This is what our church fathers recognized as well during the Reformation. 500 years ago, repentance was a major theme among the people in the church and what they recognized was that the only way to have true repentance was to turn to, learn, and lean in and follow the word of God. Last weekend, we had our officers and staff retreat, and we heard three sermons. In the, in the span of one and a half days, we heard three sermons and three seminars from Friday to Saturday evening. And then we had Sunday worship. This may perhaps lead some of us here to think that, oh, our officers are hardcore in our stances, in our doctrines, turning to the word. But I want to read to you an excerpt from the ecclesiastical ordinances for the Church of Geneva. And the Church of Geneva was where John Calvin, the reformer, and other pastors would preach and pastor. This was in 1541. Each Sunday there is to be a sermon at St. Pierre and St. Gervais at break of day and at the usual hour, which was 9 o'clock. At midday there was to be a catechism, that is instruction of little children in all the three churches. At 3 o'clock a sermon again. And also, during the days of the week, three times there will be a sermon, Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. That is a total of six sermons a week that they had in Geneva. What I'm trying to share is, we think that maybe one, one hour a week or one and a half hours a week of listening to a sermon is this incredible thing. And this is novel. Doing six sermons a week is novel, but it is not a novel pattern. The pattern that we see, even in the Old Testament, 
is what we're going to look at today. It's the pattern that comes to bear that when we hear the word of God on a regular basis, that's when people truly start to live. In fact, the motto of the Reformed Geneva was, after darkness, light. So as we read the word today, I have four brief points. The grace, the call, the task, and the responsibility that I want to go over. The grace, the call, the task, and the responsibility. The second portion of verse 1 of chapter 3 says, And the word of the Lord was rare in those days. There was no frequent vision. You know, during those dark times, a vision would be how God would, through a prophet, communicate to the people, to his people. And it was indeed rare when God would speak through a prophet in those times. We saw an example last week when God used the prophet to tell the coming judgment on the house of Eli and the fulfillment of God's purposes. Otherwise, instances like those were very rare. Imagine we lived in a time like that, where the vision of God, and as a people of God, without a vision, you're lost. You're going to live in a time like the time of Judges. Imagine we today were in a situation like this. How would we have handled it? We are westernized. We are pragmatists. And pragmatically speaking, I would imagine what we would do as a church, would we would hold more retreats especially youth retreats. And after a long night of prayer with the music swelling to a climax, the speaker would have to do a specific mention of who wants to be or who feels called to be a pastor. And kids with tears in their eyes would raise their hands and stand up from their seats and say, here I am, send me. That was me, by the way. No problem, right? We'll just do stuff like that. Send more people to seminary. Hire more pastoral staff. Start even maybe another Bible college. But here the narrative shows us that the word of God was rare because it was rare. If God does not speak, then we can do nothing but sit in silence. We cannot coerce. We cannot manipulate or force God to produce the word. And we ourselves cannot manufacture, produce, or bring about that word on our own. If we start to do that, we become more similar with the prophets of Baal rather than Elijah on Mount Carmel when they would shout and scream their prayers. And when that wouldn't work, they would shout even louder and then slash themselves with swords and spears until blood flowed. But even in their frantic prophesying, there was no response. No one answered and no one paid attention. And after hearing this, maybe some fatalists will fall into the trap of thinking, well, if God is just going to do what he wants, then there's nothing I can do about it, right? So let me just sit down and do nothing. Why worry about something I have no control over? And this is an ignorant response. Because while the question is not, how can I move God? 
it isn't just staying paralyzed or motionless in the dark either. Rather, we must ask, why was the word of God so rare? Why was he so silent? And the absence of the word of, as, uh, word of God, as we have seen in the previous book, was a sign of God's judgment. Israel stood under God's wrath. And we even saw in the beginning of this book of how even the priestly leaders were corrupt to their core. The absence of the word of God is a sign of his judgment. And it was something that Israel apparently, apparently they preferred this. They preferred to walk in darkness rather than come into the light. Because sinners do not want to hear the truth. Sinners want to sin. But at the same time, they will understand to a degree the tragedy of their predicament. So where do we see what I'm explaining in the Bible? In Amos chapter 8, verse 11 and 12, this is what God says. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord God, when I will send a famine on the land, not a famine of bread nor a thirst for water, but of the hearing the words of the Lord. They shall wander from sea to sea and from north to east. They shall run to and fro to seek the word of the Lord, but they shall not find it. In Psalm 74, the psalmist Asaph starts by asking, O oh God, why do you cast us forever? Why does your anger smoke against the sheep of your pasture? All the way down to verse 9, we see the results of God's wrath. What is the result of God's wrath? This is what verse 9 of Psalm 74 says, We do not see our signs. There is no longer any prophet, and there is none among us who knows how long. Later on in 1 Samuel chapter 28, we see how King Saul is in absolute distress because of the absence of God's word. And the absence of God's word meant the absence of God's presence. It's the walking in silent darkness that becomes absolutely unbearable. But you see, what we've read here is there is good news over the horizon. God is breaking the silence. In verse 19, we see how God was with Samuel and did not let any of his words fall to the ground. The regular pattern will now be restored and the silence will be broken. God has not forsaken his people, and there is a prophet that will speak God's word to his people. What is the reason for this? It's because of God's grace that we have his word given to his people. That's the point of chapter 3. All the riches of God's people, all the prosperity that we can measure and attain come from the word of God. We can have all these social group activities, sports, even schools and children's programs, but without the word of God, these become only shells of what they are supposed to be. When the scriptures are clearly and accurately taught and preached, the people of God are rich in the grace of God. So what about now? What about now? Don't we just have access to the Bible? Can't just anybody just look up 
in their Bible apps on their phone. It's not like we don't have access to God's word. And while this is true, I believe we would be in danger if we thought that just because we have access to the Bible app anytime we want, or just because you can just turn back and listen to the sermon if you at that point choose to feel this way, it doesn't mean we have access to receiving the word of God. In Isaiah 6, God told his prophet to go on and say this, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. You can love a church's program and hate the church. You can love bringing your kids here and despise its doctrines. You can come to look for friends or a spouse even, but still hate God. That means you can hear, but never understand. That too, my friends, is judgment from God. You can eat all the food that you want, but if for whatever reason you can't keep the food down long enough to digest, you will starve. My wife has had a difficult time as well, and many of you know this, where there was a period of many weeks, it was a few months, where she couldn't keep any meal down. It was, it was pretty hard for me to watch that, and I believe many of you can also relate to this. It doesn't matter if you can eat the most delicious foods. If you can't keep the food down, it's torture. It's hell. There is no salvation. Know that if you can hear the words that God is saying, it's because of grace. The next point is the call. The next few verses from 2 to 10, we see a, a key theme here, and that's the call of God. One would have to wonder, as, if you're re as when you're reading these verses, if God would ever get through to Samuel. <laughs> he kept on calling Samuel, and Samuel just didn't get it, right? And secondly, why didn't Samuel recognize God's voice? He literally heard it audibly. How can it be that if God were to speak, you could not recognize God's voice? And the answer to both those questions is found in verse 7. Now Samuel did not yet know the Lord, and the word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. Now I don't think this meant that Samuel didn't know the Lord like Hophni and Phinehas didn't know the Lord. That ignorance that they had was in rebellion. Samuel here doesn't recognize the Lord's voice because this was a path that he never traveled on before. Samuel had no prior contact with the Lord, so he didn't know what it was like for the Lord to speak to him. So this isn't blaming Samuel. Rather, even listening to God's voice, what we recognize takes practice and instruction. Listening to God's voice takes practice and instruction. Even once Eli recognized it, he realized it, 
that God was calling Samuel, he gave him proper instruction. This is why it's so important that if your children do not know how to understand the word of God, who do they get instruction from? Eli many times, twice actually in this uh, book so far, he calls Samuel son, my son. So he's the one that instructed Samuel how to listen to the word of God. And so what about us? How is this relevant? Because the canon is closed. How do you listen to the word of God? Because God doesn't give new revelation because the revelation that we have been given is sufficient. But rather than putting ourselves directly in Samuel's shoes, it may be beneficial for us to look at the character of God through this call. In the call to any believer, I believe you can still see the same character of God shine through. What we see is kindness and gentleness in the call. We see God not overbearing, but patient in continuing to call to Samuel. Even in Romans chapter 2, verse 4, it says, Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? I believe this is many of our stories. In the journey of a believer, God shows incredible kindness and patience, just as he did with Samuel, continually calling out to him. This is a new step, a new journey for Samuel, And God will use him in dealing with Israel and ushering in a new season. God is patient with Samuel because that's who God is. God is patient with Samuel because that's the only way Samuel would ever survive. You have to crawl before you can walk. And the Lord is there to guide his children along this process. The same God of Samuel is the God of this church today. We are witnesses of his incredible kindness and patience. Even when we started this church five years ago, this church is still young. We started in 2017. In fact, I believe that those of you that have come that are recently, that recently joined us, I believe you would not have stayed here if we were the same church as we were five years ago. That's because God has been kind to us. And he has been patient with our church. Next point is the task. After the call is confirmed, God tells Samuel that he is about to start the judgment against Eli's house from beginning to end. In verse 13 and 14 it says, And I declare to him that I am about to punish his house forever for the iniquity that he knew because his sons were blaspheming God and he did not restrain them. Therefore, I swear to the house of Eli that the iniquity of Eli's house shall not be atoned for by sacrifice or offering forever. This is a severe judgment. This is an irreversible judgment. And it is given to the boy, Samuel. Samuel knew that he had to tell Eli, but he dreaded it. And understandably so. Eli called Samuel his son. Imagine the respect that he had for Eli. Imagine the relationship and the connection he had with his instructor, Eli. This is a, there is an obviously deep affection that 
took place over the years that Eli took care of Samuel as he grew. And now there is this burden of telling Eli what God has said. And this isn't some kind of thing that Samuel built up to, right? He didn't like garner strength over the years to eventually tell Eli this. Right after the call of Samuel, this is the first thing that Samuel is tasked with. And so what we are witnessing then is the burden of the task. There is immense pressure, conflict, and even pain that can be associated with the dissemination of the word of God. It can be a heart-wrenching thing to tell someone you love the truth of God's word. And a true prophet understands this as we see here as Samuel going through. But if it weren't for Eli placing Samuel under the threat of a curse, if he didn't tell him everything that God had told him, Samuel may not have even told Eli. There is a tension that we see here that any authentic messenger of God, anyone who lives in the word, would preach. There may be even a shrinking back and aversion almost from speaking judgment because of the compassion that moves in the preacher. But at the same time, that very compassion will make him speak judgment because the truth is at stake. So there is a quick test to assess the quality of a preacher if you had only a quick time to do so. If the preacher never places you under the criticism of God's word, never tells you your sin, and only covers you with comforting words, you very well ought to wonder if he is a fugazi, a phony. But in the truth of God's word, there is comfort for people who repent and turn back to God. If someone's preaching only contains judgment as well, without the mercy that God offers through his son, that too is not good. A servant of God has a deep care for the troubles of the church and also a high regard for both the word that is to be disseminated. To put it more simply, proper preaching would afflict the comfortable and comfort the afflicted. And that will many times make the preacher hated to people and I'm not just talking about myself. I, I don't relate because I only receive love here. Let me take a drink of water real quick. Ah, I receive a lot of love here. Let me correct myself. I receive a lot of love here. But remember, I'm not the only preacher that has been called. All of you, you have been called to a royal priesthood to preach the word of God to the people that you have been called to preach to. And it could be your children. And if you're a child that and your parents do not know the Lord, then it could be to your parents. It could be to your co-workers. It could be to your other family members. And there may be many times that you will be hated to some, maybe even many. But remember, remember this. The preacher isn't responsible for the scripture that offends you or disagrees with you. No more than a server is responsible for how long your food is taking to cook 
or the cashier is responsible for the prices of the products you buy, the preacher only ought to preach what God has already said. There's a story uh, of a Grecian artist who painted this amazing picture. He painted this amazing picture on this wall, right? And it was a picture of a boy carrying a basket of grapes. And the grapes were painted so realistically that when the picture was put up in the forum for the citizens to admire, birds would come down and peck at the grapes. That's how realistic these grapes were painted. And when people saw this, especially the painter's friends, they would heap praises on him. That's amazing. That is incredible. Even the birds can't tell if these grapes are real or not. To this, the painter was not satisfied. The painter would respond by saying, I should have done a great deal more. I should have painted the boy so true to life that the birds would not have dared to come near. What he realized about art, which should point to truth, was that it must be both attractive and repelling, bringing us to a place of awe. The next point is responsibility, and this is our final point. In these final verses, from 19 and on, we see how the Lord appeared again to the people of Israel. This wraps around to verse 1, when the word of God was rare. It was no longer rare because he was with them. But the grace doesn't just end there. Grace leads to responsibility. Through Samuel, the word of God will be going to all of Israel. While there is immense privilege in receiving this grace, there is also a terrible responsibility that comes alongside with it. Once it comes to the people of God, they are responsible for it. This is nothing new, even to the secular mind, where we understand that with great power comes great responsibility. I seem to be quoting this movie a lot. This is a shame. But this is a Christian and biblical principle. In Hebrews 1, it says, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. This is even deeper, more profound than what the prophets had brought, because what the prophets had pointed to, we see has been brought to us. And that's why in Hebrews chapter 2, it says, Therefore, therefore, because the word of God has now come through his son, not just prophets, but now through his son, therefore we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. There is an even greater responsibility to those that understand the word of God. We ought not to be foolish enough to think that we can reap the benefits of Christ's work without the fearsome liability that comes with it. I say to you, great benefit 
while warning you of its terrible responsibility. Then we especially ought to look on. Then how do we handle it? We handle it by mimicking the one on whom God looked. That's in Isaiah chapter 66, verse 2. All these things my hand has made, and so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. But this is the one to whom I will look, he who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. When you understand the word of God, it brings you to a place of awe. When you understand what Christ has done for us, we are brought into a place of awe and worship. So my prayer is that your ears will be open to hear, your eyes may be open to perceive that the word of God would not fall to the hard places of your heart, but rather your heart will be softened so that as the word of God is planted, it would grow to bear much fruit to the glory of his name. Let's pray. And so, Lord, we thank you for the word that you give us. And we ask for forgiveness for the times where we took it for granted. We did not confess the way we ought to confess, and we did not repent in a manner that was pleasing to you, but rather we lived the way we wanted, whatever we thought saw fit. But no longer do we want to live this way Lord, we ask that you would give us conviction and empower us with your Holy Spirit that we may live according to your word. And as we repent and turn to you, O God, stir up within us love, joy, and hope so that we can rightfully live in accordance with your will. Let's take this time to pray and reflect on the word that we have been given and perhaps it is a time for us to repent and turn back of the times we relax when we know the convictions that the Word of God has given us. Or perhaps we were ignorant. We don't know the Word of God enough. And we must turn to Him and ask Him to open our ears. As the Holy Spirit convicts your hearts, lift up a prayer so that we can be a life, a living sacrifice that is pleasing to the Lord. Let's pray.